Thank you so much, Clark. I'm thrilled to be here. It was very kind of you to invite me. Uh, the board outside and the announcement says that I'm going to talk about the future of journalism, but I'm not. If I knew what the future of journalism was, I'd probably still be the owner of the Washington Post. But I haven't been in that business for three years. I'm happy to talk about the Post and answer questions about it. Uh, I'll make a short talk and then uh, turn to questions. I loved being here for part of the 9 a.m. service. As a graduate of St. Albans School class of 1962, I may have attended more Episcopal services than some of your clergy. <laughs> but uh, the rhythms of your church and of this service come to mean a great deal over the years. I want to talk about the city we all live in. And to establish my credentials, although some of you can match them, who else here attended Harry Truman's inaugural parade? <laughs> all right. We have some serious people here. That's good. Did you meet Truman? No, no more did I. I did shake hands with Dwight Eisenhower once in an appropriate place, the 18th tee at Burning Tree, where <laughs> my dad was golfing with me. We saw the Secret Service agents behind, and in that long-ago day, we just sat down on the bench by the 18th tee, waited for the president to come through. He shook our hands and hit a very good drive up uh, the 18th, and was very happy about it, I should add. Uh, I have been thinking about our city in the context of the presidential campaign now going on. And if you go all the way back, uh, the federal district, what's now Washington, D.C., uh, was created at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. And the dominating figure at that convention was George Washington. Had he not been there, uh, it was the belief of many people that the states would not have been able to assemble, would some states, his prestige lent great prestige to the event. So Madison and his fellow Virginians worked and worked to get him to attend. Uh, his endorsement of the Constitution his belief in it probably led to the successful ratification of that document. Ratification was a very close call, including in Virginia, which waited very late to ratify, including in New York. And uh, in many states, it was ratified by a single vote. Uh, in some states, uh, fell into line and ratified only because nine others did, and they didn't want to be excluded uh, from trading with uh, the other states. Now, what did Washington do in the Constitutional Convention, which, of course, among other things, created the federal district, Washington, D.C.? How did he exert his leadership? The first act of the convention was to elect him the president. And the one original piece of furniture you can see in Constitution Hall today is the famous chair he sat in. Famous because on the back of it is an image of the sun 
And it's that image that Franklin, at the end of that convention, said, I've been looking at the sun on the president's chair and wondering if it's a rising or a setting sun. Now I know it's a rising sun. The, Constitution last, the Constitutional Convention lasted months, and Madison kept careful notes of everything that was said. Other members of the Constitutional Convention kept diaries. They didn't record everything that was said, but they recorded the principal observances. As far as we know, and I think we know, George Washington said nothing. He never said a word in the debates of the Constitutional Convention. He, to the extent he was identified with any proposed Constitution of the United States, it was Madison's, which was agreed to by all the Virginia delegates and was called the Virginia Plan. None of it made it into the Constitution. Madison wanted a unique, uh, a one-house legislature that would elect the president, British style. Uh, and it was picked apart by the delegates. Large states argued with small states, southern states with northern states, and we wound up with our system of government of today. So Washington, who was the public figure most identified with the Constitution at the time of ratification, and Madison, who's the figure most identified with the Constitution today, the father of the Constitution, and who was also, I believe, the first president to worship at this church, is that right? Yeah. Those two made almost no contribution to the actual principal uh, parts of our government, except to say that what the majority arrived at seemed wise enough to them. Franklin also uh, contributed many ideas. I don't believe one of them is in the final Constitution. Uh, it's a bit of a contrast to styles of leadership adopted by some aspirants to the office of Washington and Madison, but we'll pass over that for now. Hamilton obviously is in vogue, couldn't be more so. And uh, therefore, I, I bet everybody in this room knows the story of the founding of Washington, D.C. That would not have been true a few years ago. But for anybody who hasn't been to Broadway or read Ron Chernow's wonderful book, uh, the George Washington hated the idea of parties and felt that Britain and Britain's government had been hurt by him, that above all, they wanted to avoid what he called factions, which meant parties. And five minutes after he was inaugurated, there were parties. And the principal parties were that led by Jefferson and that led by Hamilton, basically a very small government uh, party and a bigger government party. Hamilton having in mind the national structure that eventually really did uh, come about with a great assist from President Jefferson, who bought the Louisiana Purchase, you know, and made us a much bigger country. Uh, but Hamilton and Jefferson had a central argument that went on for years and was bitter. And it was Hamilton, the, the 
federal government at this point was new and had no debts, but each of the 13 states had paid soldiers to fight in the Revolutionary War. Some of them had kept current. Some of them had paid their bills, but others had overwhelming debts incurred to pay their soldiers. The soldiers often had been paid with paper, with, with debts of the states, and the soldiers by and large had resold that paper, they needed the money, for a fraction of the stated value. So a lot of the debt was in the hands of Wall Street, was in the hands of bankers or speculators who had bought up the soldiers' paper in the belief the states would pay for it. Hamilton believed passionately that the federal government had to assume the debts of the states, that if they didn't, no, no bank, no European country would ever lend to us. Jefferson violently believed the contrary. But Jefferson also wanted something which was a capital south of Philadelphia. He, he and the other Southerners were tired of being made to drive to New York or Philadelphia, which took a heck of a long time. Uh, I think it took uh, Washington more than four days to get home from the, from the Philadelphia Convention. And some of them traveled by sea, which was dangerous, and some of the... Uh, some of the delegates to the convention, I believe, were in fact in shipwrecks. So, uh, as all of you know, these two great causes were compromised. The federal government, Jefferson asked a couple of his friends in Congress to vote for the Hamiltonian proposal that the federal government pay the debts of the United States, and apparently they were revolted by doing so, but they did it. And Hamilton agreed that his friends would support a, cons a, a capital of the United States, not where it is now. The uh, bill that passed Congress set a capital somewhere between here and uh, up the Potomac in West Virginia, about 80 miles, where another river joins it. George Washington lived here and was a surveyor. So the choice of where the capital would be was left to George Washington, and like CEOs before and since, he put it at the place closest to his house. <laughs> so we are here because of a political compromise in a city that long lived on compromise and now abhors it, I guess. Uh, we were here because of passionate disagreements among partisans in that early government. We're here above all because of George Washington. I was born in 1945 and I've seen this city transformed many times in my life. It's about to be transformed again. Next week, the Museum of African and African American History uh, opens on the mall. It's going to be a magnificent place. It will be a place that I hope every American will visit. I know every child will visit. Those of us who grew up here and have always lived in this city have seen it change in very fundamental ways. I graduated from St. Albans in 1962 in an all-white class. St. Albans, to the credit of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, had been integrated about 1956 by Frank Snowden, uh, whom some of you know, 
very distinguished academic uh, whose father was a dean at Howard, and another student, Jim Gray, and neither of whom were in my class. But uh, I grew up in a tiny place. Uh, I was a high school wrestler, and there was a metropolitan wrestling championship, which included all the high schools around Washington. And when I was a junior, a team arrived from a place called Gaithersburg. None of us had ever heard of it. Didn't, couldn't have found it. Uh, uh, there was no beltway, you know, the stuff we all lived with. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed by how much the city has changed. I'm amazed by how some of its problems don't. Clark was nice enough to refer to the fact that I've been interested in the DC public schools for 40 years and uh, from as an outsider, as a newspaper publisher and somebody who by profession and by choice didn't meddle. So I've been interested, I've been hoping, I've been rooting, I've been just hoping that one day that DC, DC's public school children would get a chance for the education they deserve. Right now, it's in the balance, you know. Uh, the mayor of Washington has the biggest choice she'll ever have and a, a crucial moment for the city. Uh, I, I've known every school superintendent in Washington since 1975, and I've watched the politics, the governance of DC schools since then. And uh, we're, we're meeting, we're holding this discussion at what I think is the tipping point. Uh, one prayed forever that, first, that our schools would level out, stop getting worse. In 2003, on federal tests on which my education reporter friends tell me no one can cheat, we were the worst school system in the United States. Uh, that began to reverse in 2005 under Superintendent Cliff Janey. Two years later, Michelle Ree was the superintendent. She was in that job for three years and was succeeded by Kaya Henderson, who just announced her resignation as the chancellor. She resigns on October 1. For those nine years, DC has done the impossible. On those federal tests, which tests the learning of fourth and eighth graders, it has not bounded up from last place, but it has gone up every two years, five of these tests in a row. No other city in the United States has done that. DC has never done it. I don't believe any other city has ever done it, ever. I would have thought that if you showed that kind of sustained progress, they'd be leading parades for you and every other, and certainly every other city in the country is aware of what Washington has done. The parades have been notably absent. Kaya's resignation leads to a critical choice. DC is still right around the 40th percentile on those tests. Obviously, you don't go from zero to first, no matter how good your nine-year period, but every two years, it's gone up. And it can go higher. The mayor's now gonna choose the next chancellor and I don't know who that person should be. There probably are some education authorities in this room. But loving this city as much as I do, I hope those of you who care about it and those of you who care, those of you who know it and those of you who know the authorities who will pick it, really think about this. And if, I, if you know the mayor, uh, give her the 
give her the advice she needs. It, it matters. You know, I don't need to tell anybody that. Uh, this city is still a city of well-off and not so well-off. The best chance in life for the not so well-off is their education. The best chance for kids in the poorest neighborhoods in Washington is school and I think college. And uh, I have watched for 20 years as chairman and then a board member at DC CAP, so I know the SAT history of Washington and those of you who don't believe in testing kids, that is one test that ultimately matters. The, the college access tests, yes, less emphasized by some colleges than they used to be, but uh, when our students start scoring a little better, doors will open, scholarship money will be available, it'll make a gigantic difference. Last year, for the first time, DC scores on the SAT, the average scores of DCPS students went up 25 points. Now that's from an average of about 1,100 out of 2,400 on the test. So we have a ways to go. Uh, there's lots more we could talk about, uh, but I wanted to give you a chance to ask me about my years at the Post, my mother, whom I suspect many of you knew, uh, other friends I've had over the years. Uh, I'll talk about anything that's on your mind that uh, Clark doesn't tell me is inappropriate for this, <laughs> this holy place. Uh, and uh, while I know about as much as you do about the future of journalism, I'll be glad to talk about that if anyone wants. Mostly, I want to thank Clark for inviting me, and we'll, I'll get out of here well before the 11 o'clock service. Do I, with my support for public schools, which I fervently support, do I feel charter schools have a place in D.C.? Absolutely. Uh, I think D.C., in fact, today, with 40% of our public school students in charters and 60% in public schools, represents one place where, for years, uh, charter schools have been wonderful, public schools have been improving. And I think Kaya Henderson would tell you that some of the improvement in the public schools is because of the competition from charters. Uh, the best charters in D.C. are remarkable, but I think the most remarkable thing about the, the charter schools in Washington is that a man named Scott Pearson, who deserves to be uh, praised by people across the city, chairing the public charter school board, has closed down more than a third of all the schools ever granted charters in Washington. If you don't meet your academic or financial or administrative plan, you say, we're going to found a charter, it's going to do these great things, we'll achieve these results. If you don't achieve those results, you will be given a year to improve. And if that doesn't happen, you will be shut down. So people argue that the charters are a mixed lot, less so in Washington, where the the less successful ones tend not to be there anymore. Sir. This question is somewhat related to journalism, but a term that worries me more every time I read it is 
uh, this idea that we're in a post-truth world, that a post-truth world. And if you could comment a bit on the value of journalism as an arbiter of the truth versus it's whatever people think it is. Well, it isn't the first time we've lived in a post-truth world. Uh, I love to read history, and uh, the question was, everyone's disturbed to read what you do read, which that we live in a post-truth world, that the truth of something a political candidate says doesn't really matter anymore. And uh, uh, both candidates for president, if you ask their opponents why they're against him, they'll say, he's a liar, she's a liar. And uh, yeah, a lot of politicians are not wholly scrupulously truthful. I, it, I don't think it would be possible to run for office and be completely scrupulously truthful. I, I, you, you don't go into politics to offend people, and a truthful statement of everyone's feelings generally offends someone. Uh, Hamilton and Jefferson had the same issue. You know, they, they had uh, uh, Jefferson, Je Jefferson believed that John Adams was a royalist and that Hamilton was, uh, you know, every, everybody believed horrible things about Jefferson and about Washington. Most of the things they believed, most of the terrible things they believed were untrue. Some were true. Uh, the, uh, so, The, I, I was in the newspaper business for 42 years, and uh, there have always been people who believed what they believed so passionately that if the facts contradicted it, they weren't, uh, they weren't going to be influenced by the facts. And believe me, that was the case in 1971 when I went to work. It's the case today. And uh, the, what's going on in the presidential campaign really is totally unusual. When Donald Trump announced on the day before yesterday that President Obama was a citizen of the United States and it was Hillary Clinton who originally made the accusations that he wasn't, that is not true. And I was fascinated that both the New York Times and the Washington Post used the word false in describing what Trump said. That is really unusual, the newspaper uh, saying, because, you know, there's, there's a pretty good factual record here that what Trump said was false. Uh, newspapers are being stretched to their outer limits by asserting what, uh, by checking on what's true in this campaign. And if you said some people don't care about whether an assertion by a candidate is true or not, I would agree with you, some people don't. What goes on this year will be a little test for Madison and Franklin and those other people in Philadelphia in 1787. We've a test like they've never had before. And we'll see whether the voters of the United States, uh, what, uh, what they decide. Someone back here had a hand up. How do you feel uh, teachers' unions have affected the D.C. public schools? Well, uh, I don't know the current leadership of the teachers' union. Michelle Rhee and Kaya were able to do what they did because as Michelle took over, the head of the teachers' union was sent to jail for stealing funds from the, 
from the uh, members, funds that the members had paid out of their own pocket that she took for personal expenses and luxury items and whatnot. That greatly weakened the union. Kaya was then asked by Michelle to negotiate a teacher contract and spent years doing it and finally arrived at what seems like a pretty fair contract. It wound up with DC school teachers being now the best paid in this region, which you could argue might be fair, that they may have the hardest job. And uh, Kaya's, uh, this contract uh, really gives the leadership an opportunity to do what they want. Uh, I, I ran a unionized business for a long time and I'm not going to compare unions in a business with unions in the government. I think being a successful manager in government is harder and rarer than being a successful manager in business. And I suspect everybody in this room knows why. You know, in business, if things get too bad, you go out of business. And, uh, you know, you, you have some degree of control over who works for you. Uh, terrible performance can get you fired. And, and uh, so, it's not a plus. Uh, the, 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 the behavior of the teachers' unions nationwide is not entirely uh, conducive to the education of their kids. I'm not a big fan of the way some teachers' unions have behaved. I think when teachers' unions have opposed the emergence of charter schools, that's been anti-child anti and anti-education. But in Washington, you'd have to say that the administration and the union have arrived at a place where things seem to be working okay, and we'll see whether that continues. The teachers' union will relentlessly continue a campaign to try to get its hands back on. The teachers' union ran the system for a long time and would like to run it again and doesn't at the moment. Sir, let me ask you a question about yep. the 800-pound gorilla. Could you just give us your quick reflections on Watergate? I know that could be the, oh, yeah. of the whole talk. Well, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, June 17, 1972, my mother was at her farm in Marshall, Virginia, and I was there. And Howard Simon, this was June 18th, actually. Howard Simons, the managing editor of the Post, called and said there were two news stories he thought would be of interest to her. The first thing he told her, I guess I, guess I will not repeat in this holy place, <laughs> uh, but, it, but it's in her book. And uh, the second was that there had been a, a burglary at the... Uh, uh, headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. That day, the next day, that week, the following week, the following month, she, I, Ben Bradley, Bob Woodward, none of us had a remote clue that it was going to lead to what it did. Uh, if you'd said to Kay Graham that morning, a month later, two months later, that this Watergate would lead to the resignation of President Nixon, she would have said, no, it's not. You know, he'll He'll handle it. He'll he'll make the facts public. He'll he'll apologize. He'll you know if he had any connection with it, he'll say he did, and he'll apologize, and it'll be all over. Uh, but it was a very lonely time. In those pre-internet days, the Post was writing story after story about Watergate. Nobody much was following up with their own stories. Once in a while, somebody would. CBS News was very important in ultimately airing a good deal of what we'd written. After President Nixon was reelected, and there's no doubt about this because it's on tape, he said to Chuck Colson in the Oval Office, the Washington Post ought to be punished very severely for what they've done. We ought to get our friends together and get their television stations taken away from them. 
an effort was made to do that, and President Nixon appointed the Senate confirmed uh, a new chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, who had previously been the chairman of the Republican National Committee. And uh, so we would have been punished had, uh, if, you, if you see the movie of all the president's men, I love the movie, I always felt it makes the post seem too unique. You know, we were a part of the story of Watergate, but only part. Judge John Sirica of the U.S. District Court for D.C. was a huge part. His pursuit of the truth led to, uh, led to the conspiracy cracking, and Senator Irvin, Senator Baker, and the members of the Senate Watergate Committee were a huge part because they established a great deal of the truth. But Kay Graham, who, by the way, is not a character in All the President's Men, there's no publisher of that newspaper, uh, really is a hero of that, as are Ben Bradley, Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, and everyone else associated with it. Yeah, so there. Uh, yeah. As a native Washingtonian, I'm interested in how you see our city faring now, and if we will be able to find some sort of balance such that we're able to have diversity and it's not doesn't become unaffordable um, to the point that. Yes, in terms of now, it's become quite unaffordable for a lot of people to live. And how are we going to find that balance so we get back to a nice mix? Yeah, I, I think this is a very important question. The question is, the city now has changed so much that working people can't live here, teachers, police, you know, anything but middle or upper income people have a very hard time affording a place in D.C., and it's sweeping across the city, what people call gentrification. When I was a police officer, I had, my precinct was between 2nd Street Northeast and the Anacostia River, between East Capitol Street and New York Avenue. It was 95 plus percent African American, all but a little patch on Capitol Hill. 100% of that was low income, and 100% of it was high crime. And, uh, but there were pockets of Northeast where people had lived for 20 or 30 or 40 years in the same house. Uh, it was a economically mixed neighborhood because African-Americans couldn't live in the suburbs in those days uh, before the Fair Housing Act, which I think was 67 or 68. So it, the, uh, no one that I know foresaw the scope of this wave of gentrification, foresaw how far across the city people, middle-class people would go. Uh, and that wave has been accompanied by a dramatic reduction in the number of public housing units. A leading official of the city government told me as we were riding around a couple of years ago that 30,000 public housing units had been eliminated. That's a lot. That's 5% of the population of Washington right there. More. That's 30,000 is 5% of the population. So uh, it, it is, you know, some aspect, I feel the same way everybody else does. Some parts of this have been good, yet I know in Northeast that those same people who lived there 20, 30, 40 years who still own those houses feel under 
pressure to sell. If they sell, they're going to find a very hard time finding another place in Washington to live. It's the political issue in town. And we, you can't stand in the way of market forces, but I think uh, the mayor and the council really have a job to do preserving of what has, preserving some enough, preserving all we can of what long has made Washington unique, its neighborhoods, and uh, uh, some of the things we all love. And, you know, so I agree with you that it's a most serious issue, and I don't this morning have the answer. Uh, yes, in the back. Every, uh, every cop I served with has retired, I hope. And uh, uh, I have no firsthand information on current law enforcement in DC. I have instincts. Uh, I, as it happened, I served on the DC Police Department in 1969 when DC set the homicide murder record, uh, 288. Uh, as the older people in this room will remember, there was a drug-induced crime wave in 1969. The drug was heroin. Heroin was quite expensive. And to get your hands on what we, supposedly it took 40 or $50 a day to feed a heroin habit, that was a lot of money in 1969. Everybody with cash in their pocket was being held up. Cab drivers, bus drivers, convenience stores, everybody. And uh, that was what led to those 288 murders. Uh, I won't go into that. That crime wave broke in part because of a court reform in 1972 that allowed the prosecution for felonies of more felons. Uh, but that record of 288 was overwhelmed 20 years later by crack. Crack was cheap. It wasn't that people were stealing to feed their crack habit, but selling it was so profitable that crack dealers in large numbers began shooting each other. And uh, I had a visit at the Washington Post with the mayor of Washington about that time. The first question was, Mr. Mayor, the, uh, another eight people were shot, killed in Washington over the weekend. What can the city do to reduce the murder rate and the mayor said, there's nothing the mayor can do about that. And a lot of mayors would have said that in 1988 or 9. To give credit where it's due, Rudy Giuliani gets elected mayor in New York and begins saying there is something we can do. 
and begins policing in the way he did. Other cities didn't necessarily adopt Giuliani's tactics or the tactics of the NYPD, but all began, I think, when one city has a drastic reduction in its murder rate, others follow. Your question is really a question about DC, about the community, and about the police. My experience of the community was, I was a graduate of Harvard College in 1966. I'd been in Vietnam, but I also was listening to the, the debate in the United States, including Black Panthers and people who felt that the police were this foreign army in the black community. I was prepared to be feared or something. People were furious at the police, all right, it turned out. But they were furious because we weren't doing our job. They were be, their homes were being, in the middle of this crime wave, the typical crime was someone broke into your apartment, took your TV and your stereo, and sold it to get heroin. The people whose apartment were broken into had no insurance. That was six months' wages that went with the TV and the stereo. And they were enraged that the cops couldn't do anything about it, weren't doing anything about it. There were two police in number, in number nine precinct in 1969 whom I did not want to ride with and did not want to ride with because I considered them overly aggressive. They were, they were the kinds of police pictured in some of the videos that we've seen in public, but only two. There were probably 30 times as many whom I would have considered sensational, whom I would have been really happy had they been sent to my house if I, I badly needed police services and my family was in trouble. The bad police overwhelmingly were lazy. They just wanted to get through the day and do as little as possible. And they, it, that wasn't hard. You stretched out the runs, you know, you, you uh, waited to call back in, you let the other cops take the calls. And uh, that's inevitable. You know, uh, I don't know, uh, under the leadership then of Jerry Wilson and later of Maurice Cullinane and in recent years of Kathy Lanier and others, Maurice Turner, DC's had very good leadership of its police department. It has a tradition at the top of an emphasis on courtesy and decency to citizens here. I entered the force at a time when that reputation was in tatters, right after the riot. There were shooting incidents involving police for a year after April of 1968. And how Jerry Wilson stopped that is a very interesting story. But I entered a progressive department that emphasized courtesy and emphasized the importance of understanding race relations. Kathy Lanier was a sensational chief of this department and a lucky one. You know, you can get police incidents anywhere in the United States, and you can certainly get them in D.C., but that's another big choice facing Mayor Bowser, and I hope she may. I it's easier to pick a police chief than a school superintendent today. I hope she picks a great one, and I hope there's one inside the department. Other? Sir.
I don't have the answer on the right. There's enough lawyers in this church that I'm not going to be, uh, <laughs> as one of the few non-lawyers in church, I'm not going to uh, 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 write the proper law. It is an outrage that the 600,000 people in this city have, are, have no representation in Congress and never have. It is an outrage. And it matters, crucially. I was for years the CEO of one of the larger public companies in the city. Why are there no public companies in Washington, D.C.? One reason is there's competition for all those companies. States try to recruit their headquarters to their state. What CEO in his right mind is going to locate headquarters in a city with no, con no senators, no congressional representation? Uh, now, being the capital of the United States has its virtues. The city has to have a proper, respectful relationship with the federal government, understand why the city is here. But, uh, you know, the congressional amendment in 1966 or seven seemed like a great step, step to me, but was turned down by states around the country on partisan grounds. Uh, I, I uh, probably the oldest editorial position of the Washington Post is the simple outrage of our lack of representation in the Congress of the United States. By the way, a, uh, an amendment to the Constitution proposing that the residents of the nation's capital be given votes, be given representation in Congress when the population of the capital passed 30,000 was introduced in the New York Ratification Convention by Alexander Hamilton.